I laughed, I cried, I got scared. Today I'm talking about my 10 favorite scenes from 2023. This is Scott's Self-Indulgent Movie Podcast. Hello, movie friends. Welcome to Scott's Self-Indulgent Movie Podcast. I am Scott, and today I am talking about my 10 favorite movie scenes from 2023. As always, these are just taken from the movies that I saw this year. Uh, so it's been, it was a pretty good year for movies, all things considered. A lot of different stuff from a lot of different genres. And I will say now that all the movies featured here may not end up on my best of list, uh, but these individual moments really shown through or these individual scenes really shown through. So yeah, without further ado, let's get started. First up, we have I'm Just Ken from Barbie. The biggest movie earworm of the year is also my favorite moment from this year's runaway box office champ, Barbie. Even on a surface level, there's a lot to love here. The overwrought piano ballad that morphs into jamming rock song before in turning into a modern Busby Berkeley musical techno number with the rival Ken factions dance battling via their Kenergy and sliding back into the hook, thank you Mark Ronson, Ryan Gosling's go-for-broke performance oozes absurd sincerity. Meanwhile, the production team gets to go off yet again as they imagine these Ken dolls both fighting, dancing, dance fighting, and then bonding in a collection of gorgeous sets and costumes. It's a giant joke that works because of how well everyone and everything is selling it. What I think gets lost, however, is how in a movie rightly dominated by Barbie's existential crisis, this is Ken's. He's finally realizing that his utopia hasn't made him happy, that he doesn't really know who he is, what defines himself, and oddly enough, that's a unifying feeling between him and his fellow Kens. So much so that they put aside their squabbling over girls to proudly proclaim, I'm just Ken, so let's put our manly hands together and say we're Knuff. Next up, we have trivia time from The Blackening. How can someone prove their blackness? That's the, question t- that's the question that's core of the excellent horror comedy parody, The Blackening, that takes a black American experience, trying to demonstrate how black you are, and turns it into a literal game of life and death, with a group of friends trapped in a creepy basement in a creepy cabin in the woods, with mask- masked weapon-wielding killers about. The entire sequence is mostly played for laughs, as the group racks their brains trying to remember things like the second verse to Amazing Grace, or tries to do the math based off Nas lyrics before they all try to act like none of them watch Friends, when they all absolutely watched Friends. All of which has an honest question at its core. When is it enough? How do you prove when you're black enough? And that's before the game kicks out the pressure and flips the script by asking the group to pick who the blackest member of the group is. An excellent blend of social commentary and jokes that keeps the audience on the edge of their seats and reinforces the movie's main ideas. Next up, we have the epilogue from Unseen. Epilogues in horror thrillers can feel superfluous. Our our survivors have survived, which means whatever comes afterwards is a bonus, which is part of why this one hit me like a sack of bricks. After Emily's terrifying ordeal running from her homicidal ex-boyfriend is over and Sam has held helped her triumph, we cut to a few months later where Sam and Emily have both turned things around. Emily has reconnected with her mother, mother, her biggest regret, and Sam tells Emily that she's going to school, something she had put off during her mother's illness. The call is warm and friendly, with everyone demonstrating a ton of affection for each other and thankfulness that Sam was on the other end of the line when Emily called. Of course, there's one question remaining. How did Sam call Emily by mistake and set all of this in motion? 
Sam shrugs it off as an errant mistake, like a pocket dial, and gets ready to drive away from her crappy job and towards her new life before picking up the number she was trying to call and throwing it out of the car. It's a suicide hotline. It's a beautiful button that reinforces the movie's biggest appeal. By saving Emily's life, Sam also saved her own. Next up, we have Paul saves Angus from the holdovers. There are two kinds of moments I'm a big fan of, characters coming full circle and revealing their growth, and teachers standing up for their students. So of course I was a sucker for Paul Giamatti's Paul Hunnam, putting himself in harm's way for his student Angus. In a mo moment that Paul and Angus have been dreading, Angus's mother and stepdad have arrived to see what Angus did this time around and take, take him to military school and probably get Paul fired. But Paul sees to it that only one of those things happen. When Angus's mother presses Paul about whether or not Angus pushed him or tricked him into visiting Paul's biological father in a psychiatric facility, Paul falls on his sword for a student and says it was his idea and that he pushed Angus to do it. Not only that, but he then chastises Angus's parents for leaving their boy with him over Christmas break, sings Agnes's virtues, and tells them that he doesn't give a shit about the inconvenience it caused them. Obviously fired, Paul gets his money's worth, first by telling the headmaster that he's the human equivalent of penis cancer, sick burn, and giving Angus a final bit of insight, revealing which eye is his lazy eye. A nice payoff from an earlier conversation. While that's all satisfying on its own, what really makes the moment sing and warm the heart is how far Paul has come in such a short period of time. The Paul we met at the beginning of this movie would never put himself on a limb out for a student. And now, he's saving one from military school at the expense of his own career. It's beautiful stuff. Next up, we have Margaret asks about her mom's parents from Are You There God? It's Me, Margaret. One of the hallmarks of adolescent life is asking questions you've never asked before. Sometimes you question authority, and other times you ask about the changes that your body is going through. For Margaret, the biggest question she asks is about her mom's parents. Specifically, why don't we ever see them? Rachel McAdams is an absolute heartbreaker in this scene, perfectly conveying the dread in her initial reaction that a conversation she hoped would never come but knew would be here someday has finally arrived. While trialing, trying and failing to make sure she is as measured and unemotional as possible as she tries to tell Margaret the truth with the edges sanded off. Because the truth is ugly and traumatic in a way that McAdam's Barbara still isn't over. The truth is, Barbara was disowned by her very Christian parents for marrying a Jewish man. Margaret's lovable father, Herb, with their faith used as the justification. And as heartbreaking as it is to watch McAdams unpack her trauma in front of her daughter, it's just as heartwarming to see Abby writer Forston's Margaret take all of this in, deeply empathize with her mother, and rush to embrace her. Not only that, she immediately recognizes how messed up this is and takes up her frustrations with God. It's this deep well of empathy and distrust of anyone or anything that puts another person above someone else that makes this movie and Judy Bloom's seminal novel resonate to this day, and proves that despite terrible role models, Barbara is raising her daughter right. Next up, we have the first party from Talk To Me. There's a lot of great elements in this hit Aussie import. The central concept, the lead performance from Sophie Wilde, and notably the realization that doing scary stuff can be a lot of fun, especially if you're a dumb teenager. This is the energy that makes the first party, where Mia communes with the dead, so much fun, as she has walked through how the game works before trying out and kinda loving it. The scene does an excellent job of walking the line between terrifying and fun, as Mia is briefly possessed by a spirit, while her peers all film everything on their phones and scream whisper holy shit to one another before Mia comes out, seemingly fine. 
The camera work here is particularly excellent, with the camera throwing back and following the possessed person's head as it's thrown back, almost like it's doing a shot or a hit of a drug. It captures the nervous joy of risky behavior and why young folks find it so enticing. It feels dangerous. It feels forbidden. It also feels fun. Next up, we have the Holga flashback from Dungeons & Dragons Honor Among Thieves. This one is my obligatory moment you kind of knew was coming but still hit like a truck full of bricks moment of the year. For most of the movie, Ed Edgen Darvis and company have been trying to find a tablet with the ability to revive the dead and save the kingdom from a sorcerer named Sophina. Now that both are accomplished, the team should be feeling great, but they aren't, because their resident brawler, Holga, has been fatally injured in the bout against Sophina. Knowing that the tablet is a one-use-only kind of item, Darvis still wants to bring back his deceased wife, whose death he feels guilty about. But seeing his daughter Kira at Holga's side triggers a series of memories about him, Kira, and Holga's life together. The message is clear. While Edgen's wife may, be, may have been Kira's birth mother, Holga is the only mother Kira has ever known. With that in mind, Darvis makes a hard but ultimately easy choice to revive Holga. Not only is it revival that doesn't feel cheap, it's also a great demonstration of how Darvis's priorities and character have shifted over the course of the film, even if you already knew it was coming. Next up, we have Rampage and Rebirth from Nimona. After another betrayal by someone they've grown to care about, our would-be knight, would knight Ballister, our titular hero is despondent and seemingly makes the decision to go on a rampage throughout the kingdom. But something is off about the whole affair. Despite getting a barrage attacks from the kingdom's knights in their beastly black form, Nimona isn't attacking. They're just moving forward towards the city center. At which point, their intention is made clear. They're not trying to destroy the kingdom. They're trying to destroy themselves. Revealing their heart to a statue of the first person who broke it, Nimona seems primed to end their life by impaling themselves, until a human and robotic hand gently press against their chest. It's Ballister, who arrives with the, com with the compassion to tell Nimona, I care about you, and most importantly, I see you. This radical act of acceptance gives Nimona allows Mona to finally feel vulnerable as they collapse into Ballister's arms in human form. But the fight isn't over, because the director of the Kingdom's Guard has turned a terrifying weapon towards the city center that will likely kill half the population. Knowing only they have the power to stop it, Nimona changes into a gigantic phoenix, the first time they've ever used this form and one of the best on-the-nose metaphors were rebirth, and muffles the cannon before it can harm anyone besides them or the director, while also opening up the ki kingdom to a whole brand new world of possibilities. Next up, we have Oppie gives his victory speech from Oppenheimer. For over two hours, Robert Oppenheimer and company have been pushing towards one goal, create an atomic bomb. And now, not only is the project a success, but the bomb has been used against Japan and seemingly led the nation to surrender and officially end World War II. But the twinges in Oppenheimer's brain about what this creation, what it means for the world, and the people who were bombed has started to wreak havoc on his mind. Case in point, his victory speech for the Los Alamos facility. In an official job-well-done pep talk, Oppenheimer enters what feels like a pep rally, hence all of the stamping shoes and folks chanting his nickname, Oppie, to sing everyone and the bomb's praises for their hard work and ending the war. But Robert's words versus his feelings are at odds. 
As Robert fires off crowd-pleasing sentiments like he doesn't think the Japanese liked it very much in reference to the bombing, his environment blurs and shakes and the sound drops in and out, almost like he's been shelled by the realization of what he's done, what he's doing, and what he created. The sound design and camera work are doing a lot of the heavy lifting here, making Oppenheimer look and feel isolated in a crowded building chanting his name, as Killian Murphy does his best to sell every line before retreating into himself and back again. It's the most obvious manifestation of the guilt that will rule the man, at least in the film, for the rest of his days. Next up, we have Rocket's backstory from Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. The hardest portions of Guardians 3 are also what make it so effective and moving. While almost everyone's trauma has been closely examined to this point, the Marvel devotees have never seen what made Rocket Rocket. And we discover what we discover is some of the most heartbreaking shit ever put into a Marvel movie. As it turns out, Rocket was an experiment for the High Evolutionary, who experimented on all kinds of cuddly creatures, turning in them into mechanized monstrosities for the sake of progress. But even amongst that, Rocket found hope and joy with his fellow animals, and dreamed about escaping and living a life where they could see the sky. But when Rocket tries to escape with all of his friends before the High Evolutionary calls all of them anyway, everyone but Rocket are killed in the attempt, leaving Rocket feeling guilty and broken. Rocket may have escaped, but this is the pain he's been attempting to keep at bay and outrun his entire life. And thankfully, he gets a chance to face it head on. So those are my 10 favorite movie scenes from the past year. There's an action scenes list coming up next. So thank you so much for listening. And as always, stay safe and I'll catch you next time. This has been Scott's Self-Indulgent Movie Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to join our Facebook group, Scott's Self-Indulgent Movie World, for the latest reviews, discussions, and more. See you next time, everybody, and stay safe.